This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Good morning, Mosaic Church. Uh, my name is Matt Kelly. I am a, also a member here. And I have the privilege of um, sharing with you from God's word. And I don't do this very often, so if you guys don't mind, I would love to pray mostly for myself and ask you to join with me, and, and then we'll get started. So let me pray. Father, you, you are good, and you do not need me um, to speak to our hearts. Um, and I'm so thankful for that. You can take, no matter what I say, you can take it and your spirit can apply it to the specific circumstances of every heart here. And so, Lord, that's what I pray. I pray that um, you would use um, these words, um, both the ones that come from the scripture and the ones that come uh, from my own heart and my own understanding, and you would apply them. And if there's anything that doesn't fit and isn't right, um, that would fall away, and only what is true would remain. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time, and thank you for the opportunity to hear from you this morning. Amen. So I'm going to try to stay tethered to this stand so that I don't walk out in the crowd and mess up the speaker. So um, I'll do my best. When I was uh, 16 years old, I had my favorite teacher in high school. His name was Mr. Whitelaw. And he was um, um, not only a great math teacher, he also was um, the swim coach. And he was kind of a stern man. Um, He was a great swim coach. He's actually in the Missouri Hall of Fame as a swim coach. Um, But he was also a really good math teacher. And And what I loved about him is he was really strict, but he was a really good teacher, and you learned a lot. Um, but he kind of, he was kind of gruff, um, you know, a little bit, you know, you didn't get a lot of smiles from Mr. Whitelaw, it's okay. And one day he asked me a question and, and it has stuck with me all these years. And he said, Matt, are you planning to fight vampires after school today? It was, it was odd. It threw me a little bit. I'm like, where, what is he asking? Like, I said, um, Mr. Whitelaw, I am not planning on fighting any vampires um, after school. Uh, Why do you ask? And he said, well, you have three crosses on and a giant t-shirt that has 12-inch letters that says Jesus, period. And so I figured with that kind of religious armor, you must have had something planned for after school. So that gives you a little indication of the kind of high school kid I was. Um, I, I was a, a, little, um, a little over the top in my religious zeal, to say the least. Um, one cross was not enough, apparently, at least that day. So, uh, but I, um, but I, I think that came out of, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about why was I that kid? Um, why was I the one that felt like I needed to proclaim my Christianity not just once but fourfold every time I walked out the door? And, and the reason was is that 
I had learned pretty early on, um, and maybe some of you are like this, um, I think every kid figures out a strategy to get attention. Um, Every kid figures out a way to um, make sure that their mom or their dad and their teachers and their sports coach and whoever is important in their life notices who they are. And for me, that was to um, be as perfect as I could possibly be. So I worked really, really hard in school. I did well. Um, those of you who know me now, I'm, I'm in grad school, know that that has not completely gone away, and I s- still really struggle um, if I don't get an A in every class. Um, but I worked really, really hard in school. Um, I worked to be the best athlete I could be. I worked to be um, the best kid I could be. Um, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't... Um, drink or smoke or chew or goes with girls that do. I didn't do any of that stuff because I was working so hard to be perfect because I found that if it, the more perfect I could become, then the more praise I got from the people that I cared about, from my mom and dad, from the teachers. Um, and that translated to church as well. So I was working really hard to be the kid that knew every Bible verse and had it memorized, knew every theological answer to every question, I was working really hard. Uh, The problem with being perfect is that uh, there's two people who know that you're not. No matter how hard you work, those two people are you and God. And I couldn't fool myself. Um, I I couldn't lie to myself. I, I knew... I wasn't perfect. I knew the blackness of my own heart. And in fact, I I think because I was so focused on being perfect, I was even more focused on my imperfections. And so it haunted me. Uh, There were lots of nights that I um, lay in bed trying to figure out what's wrong with me. Um, Why do I have greed and selfishness. Why am I so judgmental? Why do I think I'm better than everybody else? Why don't I care about people? Um, um, why do I struggle with, um, with lust? Why do, I, why do I struggle with bitterness and anger and all these things? And, and nobody saw any of that because I didn't let anybody see that I wasn't as perfect as I claimed to be. But I saw it, and I knew God saw it. Um, And so I did what every religious addict does. I just doubled down. Like, let's work harder to be perfect. Uh, Let's try harder. Let's read my Bible more. Let's pray more. Um, But that didn't really work either. And I um, probably asked Jesus to save me and come into my heart. And God, I trust you and I give you everything a thousand times between middle school and high school. Um, I got baptized a couple extra times. I thought maybe that would work. You know, whatever, whatever I, what can I do? Because um, when I looked at my heart, I thought, okay, I've got these, you know, Jesus said, Jesus described the religious leaders of his day like this. He said they were like whitewashed tombs. They looked really good on the outside, and the inside they were full of dead men's bones. And I thought, man, I, I've not only got skeletons in the closets of my heart, I feel like I have a graveyard. And what's worse, I'm a hypocrite because I'm lying and pretending to be somebody I'm not every day, and nobody knows but me. And 
that continued all through high school, and I was just desperate. I didn't know what to do. And the religion that was supposed to bring me peace and joy just brought me desperation and exhaustion. That was what Christianity was for me. Uh, This morning, we're going to read Exodus 28 and 29. Um, And uh, chapters 28 and 29, it's it's two interesting chapters. Chapter 28, if you're a fashion buff, it's it's a great chapter for you. It's all about uh, the high priest and his clothing. So if you like a little bling, that, that, it's a good chapter. Uh, chapter 29 is all about um, ordaining um, the high priest and um, his sons as priests. So let's jump into it. Let's read chapter 28. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you have an app, that works too. Um, but I'd love for you to be able to see the words I'm reading. And I'm, I'm not going to read very much. I would encourage you to read more, especially if you're more interested. In, and I'm not going to be able to get into all the symbolism of, of the clothing and everything else. So if, you, if you're just longing to know what the ephod was, you know, let's talk. We can talk about it. Um, so let me read chap- Exodus 28, uh, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest. Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful who I have filled with the Holy Spirit, or with a spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make a a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. The rest of that chapter goes on to describe in, in great detail, actually, um, what these, this clothing look like. And if you'll notice, it's um, a lot of, we, we taught Aaron or I'm sorry, Adam preached a couple of weeks ago about the contributions um, that the people of Israel brought. And so you'll notice that those correspond, that they took some of those things that the people brought, the finest things that the people had, and used them to make this clothing for Aaron and his sons. And another thing you'll notice is that God gave his spirit to these artists to make these clothes for beauty and for glory. And so they were they were some impressive duds. I mean, they were, they were some beautiful clothing that reflected the beauty and glory of the God um, that we serve. And so when you think about it, think about, um, you know, fashion was a little different 3,500 years ago. So, you know, um, it's hard to connect a little bit, but think about the finest clothing in the world and think that's what this was. The finest clothing money could buy was given to Aaron and his sons to reflect the weight and glory of the God they served. But the thing I really want you to notice about um, these first few verses, and it's actually repeated five times if you, if you count in these two chapters, Aaron and his sons were set apart to serve God. Um, they weren't there to serve the people of Israel. 
Um, it, it literally says five times, set apart Aaron and his sons to serve me. We, we don't gather here for our own entertainment. We don't, we don't gather here to be educated, although hopefully those, I don't know if you get entertained at church, but maybe. Um, but we gather here because we serve a God who is worthy of our worship. And that may seem selfish, right? Like, who is God that he demands that we all show up on a Sunday morning? I think that's a great question. And the answer is that um, not only is God worthy of our worship, but that we were meant to worship him. So if you are following along, if you like to take notes, um, I'm going to have three points this morning. Um, and three questions after each of those points. The first one is that we were made for a relationship with God. We are made to live in his presence. That's, that's who God made us to be. And therefore, for us to draw into worship is to do the thing that is in our very spiritual DNA to do. It's what God created us to do, is to worship, to be in his presence, um, to enjoy him forever. Psalm uh, 1611 says this. It says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Um, Pastor and theologian John Piper up in Minnesota. um, Some of you guys may have read some books by him. Highly recommended. But um, he he calls this Christian hedonism. um, So if you're familiar with hedonism, it's this idea that you pursue pleasure at any cost. And he says for the Christian, um, the greatest pleasure we can possibly experience is to worship God and to be in his presence. This is how he puts it. Um, God's ultimate goal in the world, his glory, and our deepest desire, our joy, are one and the same. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So the question I have this morning for you, is it joy to come into his presence? Whether it's on a Sunday morning or it's um, taking a walk in the bosky and just talking to him or it's reading your Bible, is it joy Or is it duty or drudgery? Because if it's duty or drudgery, then maybe, like me in high school, there's something wrong. Maybe you don't understand who God is. Um, I I sure didn't. I was was lost. Even though I I, I think I was, um, I, I think God had saved me, redeemed me, all those things were true. My theology made my relationship with God miserable. And so I would encourage you to ask that question. Is is it duty or drudgery to come into God's presence or is it joy? Well, let's read chapter 29. So let me flip over a couple pages in my real Bible with paper. Um, Now this, so chapter one again, now this is what you shall do to them. Um, So he's talking about Aaron and his sons. This is God telling Moses what to do. 
says, this is what you shall do to Aaron and his sons to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them out of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So what is happening here? Um, Adam's talked a lot about how God is establishing this relationship with his people. And in many ways, it's like a marriage um, where um, he, he is making a promise to his people. They are making promises to him. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a ceremony, um, and, and this is the establishing of a priesthood that would mediate between God and his people. Um, God is holy, and we're not, and so um, God sets up this way for, for God's people to be in his presence. But like any good relationship, um, God's people need a way to say they're sorry. Because God knows, God knows his people. He knows that they're stubborn. Um, He knows that they're hard-hearted. He knows that they're just like us and that they're going to make mistakes and they're going to fail and they're going to sin and they're not going to be the people that God's called them to be. And so he, he makes this way for them to say they're sorry. And so the priesthood, this is the establishing of the priesthood that would start Um, The actual ceremony for this is in Leviticus 8 that goes from Leviticus 8 all the way to AD 70 um, when the temple is destroyed. So for 1,500 years, there's a high priest, there's priests, there's sacrifices for 1,500 years. Uh, We had a few breaks um, because of national apostasy and when the temple was destroyed and some things like that, but for 1,500 years... And then for the last 2,000 years, we haven't had a priesthood. And we'll talk about a little bit about that. But there were two purposes of this priesthood. Um, one was the priests were to teach God's people his laws. Um, that was one of their jobs, was to um, teach the people what it meant to be in this covenant relationship with God and how they are to maintain that relationship with God. So if you are paying attention Point number two, this is the maintaining the relationship part. Um, so this is how they maintain their relationship with God is, is through this priesthood. So um, they, were, they were to teach God's people his laws. But the second thing they were to do is to offer gifts and sacrifices to God, um, primarily um, for, um, for the people's sin. So primarily they're, um, the sacrifices... You could also bring a sacrifice to say, God, thank you for being who you are. But primarily, they were to cover the people's sin because the people were sinful and God was not. So for them to be in God's presence, God required 
a sacrifice. Um, Israel's problem was my problem, was your problem, and that is sin. And, and I don't pretend to think that in a group this big that, that we all know what that means or we all even have the same definition. So, um, so in every relationship, the greatest threat to that relationship is breaking promises. Um, and, so, and so sin is anything that is contrary to God's will for us, to the way he wants us to live, and for his world. So anything contrary to that is sin. And in terms of relationship, it's looking to someone or something um, to, to meet the needs that only God can meet. And it's putting that something or someone in God's place. Um, so the book of Hebrews, which has actually been read twice this morning, which I am super excited about, but the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, the book of Hebrews helps us understand um, a lot of what's happening in the Old Testament, especially about the priesthood. And in chapter 9, verse 22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Um, so when the priests, um, if you read chapter 9, it, it says that Aaron and his sons would lay their hands on the bull or the ram to be sacrificed, and they would identify with that animal. And then um, they would um, kill that animal and put some pieces on the altar. They would take the blood and throw it on the altar. It, it sounds gruesome, especially to 21st century Americans where we just, if we need meat, we go to the grocery store. Uh, we don't have to slaughter animals in our yard anymore. Um, but, but that's what's happening. Um, and some of the meat would be saved for the priest, and some would be burned on the altar and as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Um, and so remember, without the shedding blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That these animals, um, by laying their hands on the animal, they're saying this animal, who is supposed to be perfect, without defect, without blemish, the best of the flock, this animal takes my place. Um, this animal takes the place of the people. And although it does not deserve to die, I do because I've broken God's laws and I've transgressed his covenant. And so um, in God's mercy, we, we kill this animal instead of um, offering myself. So it was um, a theological term, penal substitutionary atonement. Um, penal has to do with punishment, like penal code, penal colony, penal system. You guys have probably heard that before. It has to do with punishment. Substitutionary, it was in place of, and then atonement. Uh, the wrath of God is turned away. Um, the, the punishment that we deserve, um, in this case, this animal received. Um, the problem was that no one knew better than the high priest that the, this sacrifice of animals isn't really... Um, doesn't really do the job. Um, it covers sins. It cleanses them temporarily of sins, but it does not take sins away. They are still in their sins. Um, and so if I'm the high priest, I am, my, my entire life is this. My entire life is teaching God's laws and watching his people break them. 
having those people come confess their sins day after day, um, greed, idolatry, adultery, um, murder, what, whatever their sins are, they're coming day after day. They're confessing those sins. And I'm listening to this, and then I am slaughtering animals in the, the place of the people in order to cover their sins. But I'm going to have to do the exact same thing tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, month after month, year after year for 1,500 years. And chances are my father was a high priest. One of my sons will be a high priest. And I, I not only have to sacrifice sins for the people, I have to sacrifice for my own sins because I'm just as sinful as they are. If you don't believe me, Aaron, who was our first high priest, Moses' brother, three chapters later will lead the entire Isra- people of Israel into idolatry by making the golden calf. Which some of you probably know that story. Three chapters before he's even consecrated as a high priest, before he's set apart, he's going to lead them all into idol- idolatry. So even Aaron is just as imperfect as the rest of us. Hebrews 10, 11 puts it this way. And every, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It's kind of a bleak picture, isn't it? The, the very worship God set up is insufficient to save us. So the, que- the second question I have for you, um, God set up this way to maintain the relationship, and yet it's, it's not enough. The second question I have is, how is the awareness of your sin, whatever those sins are, how is the awareness of your sin keeping you from enjoying God's presence? Because maybe you're like me. I was terrified that God saw me as this wayward teenager whose parents couldn't stand him who's sneaking out at night and doing drugs, and his parents are at the wit's end, and they think, what are we going to do with this kid? That's what I thought, how I thought God saw me. Well, that continued until I was a freshman in college. And when I was a freshman, um, I went to the University of Kansas, uh, Rock Jock, and I lived in Ellsworth Hall. And... Uh, my freshman year, my roommate and I, Brian, we found this freshman Bible study led by this guy named Michael, and we showed up, and there were about 14 other guys there, and we're in this Bible study in the basement of Ellsworth, crammed in this little room around this table, and the fifth week of the Bible study, the topic was on how to experience God's love and forgiveness, and despite, you know, I would have never admitted this because I was you know, the religious kid, right? I'm supposed to know all the answers, but I couldn't wait to hear how to experience God's love and forgiveness because I didn't know. Um, and so Michael began to talk about how um, Jesus came, that after 1,500 years, Jesus comes and um, he lived a perfect life that I could never live, um, I didn't have to be perfect anymore. I didn't even have to try to be perfect. And I for sure didn't have to pretend to be perfect. But not only did he live the perfect life that I couldn't live, he died the death that I deserved. Um, He became the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
Um, he took my place. Remember, penal substitutionary atonement, and ex- except it's not blood, the blood of bulls and rams. It's the blood of God's own son, God himself, who took my place for my sin. And so as, as he's explaining all this, um, I start weeping. Um, like, literally, like at 18 years old, I'm weeping and sobbing. And it was a little awkward, just to be honest. Like, you know, all these 14 other freshman guys are like, dude, I don't know what's wrong with that guy. But I'm not sure I'm coming back to the Bible study. Um, but anyway, I, I'm weeping because it's the first time I've begun to understand this. And Michael's talking about some of his sins, and they're the same sins that I have. And yet he's saying, Matt, you can be forgiven. And, and I could hardly believe it. Um, and, and that night, at 18 years old, was the start of a new freedom for me. Because all of a sudden, I didn't have to try to be perfect anymore. Um, again, for some of you who know me, uh, old habits die hard, and I still try to be perfect. But I catch myself now, and I go, man, I don't, what am I doing? I don't, I don't have to do this. I can actually come as Matt, not as the imposter, not putting on a show. I can just come and be me. I can be honest about how messed up I am and how broken my heart is, and I can pull some of those skeletons out of the closet and say, this is where I'm really at today, not five years ago, but today. Um, And that freedom came because Jesus had done the work for me. Um, He he had lived the perfect life that I couldn't live. Um, And um, I think Caleb read it. He he sits at the right hand of the Father. In Hebrews, it says he sits at the right hand of the Father and ever lives to intercede for us. On the basis of his perfect life and shed death, Today, Jesus is in the presence of God. And whenever there's an accusation against you or me, Jesus says, wait, my blood paid for that. My blood paid for that. And so we can be forgiven. And all we have to do is just trust him. We don't have to work hard. Um, We don't have to perform religiously. Um, um, the freedom to, to go from have to to want to. That's what worship should be. If it's duty or drudgery, right, it's have to. Worship should be want to. I want to come to church because I want to be with God's people because I want to hear yet again that I'm forgiven. Maybe you have been in that same place. Maybe you've been desperately trying to earn God's favor. Um, Maybe um, you weren't the perfect one. Maybe you were the black sheep. Maybe a long time ago, you just decided, forget it. I give up trying to ever be good enough for God, and I'm not even going to try anymore. God's grace extends to you too. It's for all of us. The self-righteous religious zealot with three crosses and the Jesus period t-shirt. 
or the most hardened sinner, God's grace is available to all of us. Um, Jesus puts it this way. Um, this, is, this is the message version, uh, which I love for this passage. In Matthew 11, Jesus holds his hands out to a people who have been burdened with this system of trying to follow rules and make sacrifices for sins that never could take away their sin for 1,500 years. And Jesus holds out his hands and he says this, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's the invitation this morning. It's not to work harder and try harder. It's to trust in Jesus. Let Jesus change your heart and begin to live in response to the work that he's already done. Um, God's people, um, Jesus offers rest to all of us who are willing to give up trying to be good enough. He offers rest. And it's, it's not a rest... Um, <laughs> It's not a rest of resignation. It's a rest that brings energy and hope because we can enter the world as authentic people willing to show our true selves. Because if you have trusted Jesus this morning, he has forever proclaimed you forgiven and righteous and his precious son or daughter forever. So my third question is, this morning, can you let Jesus be enough? Can you let his work for you be enough this morning? Because if you can, that's where freedom really starts. Um, Grant read it earlier this morning out of Hebrews 10. Um, Since we have a great high priest, uh, I don't have it memorized. Um, Something like this. Since we have a great high priest who is um, in the heavens, let us draw near with confidence um, and a clear conscience and sure assurance of faith. That is the invitation. Um, No longer dependent on the blood of bull and and goats, but dependent on the life and death of our Savior. Once for all. Um, people of Mosaic, let Jesus do the work and save you. That is good news. That's the gospel. Let me pray. Father, you are so good, and words do not fully capture the the goodness of the work that you've done and the good news that it is. And so... Lord, 35 minutes or so um, is inadequate to explain it. And so, Lord, I pray that as you freed, began to free my heart at 18 years old, 
that you would continue to free the hearts of the people gathered this morning. That you would help them to understand that they don't have to perform anymore, that you've done all the work, and then they can rest in you and live joyfully. That to, that to be in your presence is fullness of joy. Lord, I pray that, and we thank you. And I pray that you would be with us as we sing and worship the great God that you are. Uh, We say this in the matchless name of Jesus, our great high priest, who lives to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives.